and welcome to another episode of the Turn Up For What podcast talking your Houston Texans straight from the Great British Isles. It's been and gone the combine and we're edging towards free agency for Houston and quite where the team is going to turn. Probably nobody is all that sure yet to, to run it through with me this week, a returning guest as uh, Mr. Cody Stoops from ESPN 97.5. Cody, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, man. Always uh, pumped talking about the Texans, but there's a little a little positive momentum with this organization now. So I like that a little bit more than some of the downtimes we've had talking about this team. Yeah, that's right. I think, and uh, what did you make of the dust kind of settling right now on the, on the Lovey Smith hire? What do you think of the hire and just the process in general and how you kind of sort of process that a couple of weeks in? Look, there's a couple of different ways you can look at Lovey Smith and the situation where the Texans ended up hiring him. The biggest thing for me is he's not Josh McCown. I was not on board with the Josh McCown line of thinking. This team did not need to take an extreme. Is if you needed heart surgery and the top medical student in the nation was your only option, you would let that kid do your heart surgery. But that's not the only option the Texans had. If Josh McCown was the only option, they should have hired Josh McCown. But he wasn't the only option. I didn't love the process. I thought it should have been a much more far-reaching process. Now, Nick Casario has done a really good job of explaining a couple of different times that he talked to coaches in a non-official capacity. So I wonder if he talked to a lot of guys that said, yeah, hey, I'm not interested in officially interviewing for your job, but I'd love to talk to you about the team. And I do like that about Casario's process as he's made it very clear. They had the official interviews, but then they talked to a bunch of different guys in a non-official capacity to learn about themselves and learn about the Texans. And so it's not McCown. They end up with Lovey Smith. And it's clear continuity was a very important thing for this organization. They very much wanted to keep Pep Hamilton around who coached Josh McCown in Cleveland. They very much wanted to keep Lovey Smith around who coached Josh McCown in Chicago. I do believe that Pep Hamilton would have been the OC and Lovey Smith would have been the DC if McCown was the head coach. And ultimately when the organization comes to its senses or decides that it can't hire Josh McCown, they go through the process and they decide, well, continuity is the biggest thing. I feel like that's where Jonathan Gannon got scooped out, the Eagles defensive coordinator, he got scooped out of the process because it feels like he maybe wanted a little bit more turnover than what the Texans were comfortable with. And so they turned to Lovey Smith and they promote Smith from D.C. to head coach. I don't love the move, but I certainly don't hate the move. And Lovey has been a nice steadying force. And I don't believe anybody in that organization is going to push Lovey Smith around like it seems like at different times they had to push David Cully around. Yeah, so I've got a theory on that, right? Let, hear, hear this one out and let me know what you think. So if you watch the video when they're getting uh, ready to go on stage at the opening conference for Lovey Smith Hire and you see all the kind of backstage footage with Cal and Hannah and everything and Cal's giving them the sort of playful kind of punches they're going up onto the stage and everything and obviously the father had huge amount of respect, Bob, for Lovey Smith. And obviously that that carries you know huge weight with Cal, um, partly because I don't think he's ever quite found his own way in life, you know, um, out coming out of that shadow. Um, but what do you, do you think he he holds Lovey in high enough regard? Because right, our problems extend well beyond the head coach. That's clear. Do you think Lovey Smith has enough weight or share of Cal's ear to make more changes for the better than just on the football field? 
Nick Casario runs this organization. So I think that kind of answers how I think about Lovey Smith's input. I believe Lovey Smith is going to work in tandem with Nick Casario and Nick Casario would never hire someone that is going to be a hurdle in accomplishing what Nick Casario wants to do with the Houston Texans. Do I believe Lovey Smith is going to try to open Casario up to different avenues? Do I believe that Lovey Smith is going to have um, clashes with Nick Casario over things? I certainly do, but there's no more go to the owner and have the owner sort of tell you to figure it out to break the tie, which is a lot of times what happened with Bill O'Brien and Rick Smith. It is Nick Casario runs this organization. He's in charge of everything. And ultimately, I do believe what Nick Casario says will go when it comes to the Houston Texans. Now, how much Lovey Smith is going to push back, how much input he has, I think we'll find that out over the course of the season. Again, I don't think Lovey Smith's going to get pushed around, but I also don't believe Nick Casario hired a coach that's going to stand in the way of doing things exactly the way Nick Casario wants to do things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I just wonder if there's some change. I think as well, like, like Casario is very open-minded, like you said, and he's willing to kind of take different parts of, of, of things. And he, you know, he's often saying he's flexible and, and what have you in terms of, in terms of his job up till now, you know, if you take that, if you push that five-man draft aside, which, you know, was a decent hit rate, but, you know, I would say we all felt good about Justin Reed's draft class, you know, after year one, and that the complexion of that's very, very different now. Um, Jordan Thomas being the biggest one, you thought you'd found a starting tight end in the, you know, the late sixth round or what have you. Um, if you push that to the side, because that's still, a, that's still a, a something to pay dividends over time, we'll find that out. But what do you think of Caserio's job that he's done because I, I had multiple conversations with this and there was one guy that was coming back at me on Twitter and I asked him just simply which a question he could not answer was tell me one area apart from that five-man draft that he's taken very clearly from A to B that's improved and um, I'm unclear because he, everybody's willing to praise him and I think you know he's, he's he's got that benefit of coming after a disaster so he will always look competent by definition but I'm still you know I'm still very unclear of uh, his direction and where he's taken it. It's starting to feel like it's becoming clearer, but I'm I'm not sure of what the job he's done up to this point. Look, Casario's had a really rough task, and he took the job thinking Deshaun Watson was going to be his quarterback, so he probably had one plan in place. And it becomes very quickly after he takes the job clear that Deshaun Watson's not going to be his quarterback. So he moves into what is essentially plan B, I would think, at that point. And then plan B is thrown out the window. Think about what he thought was going to happen once Deshaun Watson was not going to play for the Houston Texans. Nick Casario had to believe he was trading Deshaun Watson for a King's ransom, and he was going to be able to make some significant improvements to this team right away via the draft. Well, when Deshaun Watson's legal stuff pops up, Nick Casario doesn't go to plan C because he can't foresee that. You don't have a plan for, okay, I'm not going to be able to trade Deshaun Watson. So at that point, it's a scramble. So I'm grading all of Nick Casario's non-draft stuff on a curve. I'm grading it all on a curve because I don't believe he went down a path that he wanted to go down. Now, even with the grade on the curve, it hadn't been great. I haven't loved many of the free agent signings. I understand the idea of let's build a base. Let's get some guys in here that are maybe on one-year deals that we think we might want to bring back, or we at least know the level of player that we want to try to you know, improve on when we have a little bit more money in free agency. So I wasn't super impressed with the free agent hall. A lot of these guys just really, frankly, didn't pay off, didn't play well. And he hasn't won a trade yet. I mean, I guess the the Nico Collins trade has been fine. Um, again, that's a part of the draft. But 
that's been fine. But as far as like trading picks for players or trading players for a different player, he's taken a loss on basically every trade to this point. And that is something that is concerning because that is going to be an element of rounding out the roster once it is built from the draft and with good free agent signings is that last little piece of the roster that you improve via trade, he's got to start winning some trades. And if he can lose all of those trades, he can lose the Deshaun Watson trade. Now they're totally different. Okay. A six round pick for Ryan Finley, a late round pick for Ryan Izzo, uh, the pick that he sent for um, Lawson, like, uh, or uh, Anthony Miller, I mean, the Lawson trade, those are all low stakes trades. But if you can't win any low stakes trades, my confidence has to be a little waned in you in a high stakes trade, like the Deshaun Watson situation. And again, there's extenuating circumstances in that. So I, I'm grading Nick Casario on a curve. I always liken it to a class. He has not had a midterm test yet. He has not had a final yet. He has not even had a big test yet. It's all been quizzes. It's all been homework. And the results have been mixed to this point. But that's not a large part of his grade. The midterms and the finals are what are the large parts of your grade. And that's what I look at with Casario. He hasn't had a midterm. He hasn't had a final. And really, he hasn't had a big test yet for this organization. So again, grading on a curve. And I guess the way I would say it is it's kind of incomplete at this point. Yeah, I just I keep going back to the fact that he's just not really bought anybody in the front office and, and where the foundations are in that in terms of talent evaluation, which needs to be better because one of the big reasons why we're in there. And the salary cap, he's, he's quite clearly his weakness is the salary cap. When you look at t- almost 13 million uh, dead cap hit of the 36 going into this year is Zach Cunningham. When fair enough, the Bradley Roby one and... Uh, and the Charles Amenahu one and the Randall Cobb, yeah, okay, you got picks back for that so we can kind of push those to a side, but the extension of Whitney Merciless, the rework of Zach Cunningham and all this kind of stuff, you know, when it was really clear from, you know, from certainly from my point of view and many others that, you know, those guys were not going to see the, we're not going to see, you know, that much longer action in terms of being a Texan because they just the simply the play wasn't there or, or in Cunningham's case, he just completely checked out. So I think he needs to bring a sort of cap guy in and maybe delegate a bit. And they've kind of taken all that clarity away from, from everybody because, the, you know, the, the sort of secrecy or, or the up till secrecy until... Uh, Till Mr. Easter be popped up on a podcast with a couple of kids over the weekend, which I thought was interesting. Um, maybe that's him creeping back out from under his rock. But, you know, I, I, I think he needs, you know, more bodies in there. You know, if you think how many people work a front office, they, they may have brought them in. They, they keep it hush-hush. But that, certainly that feels like a big weakness, you know, as we're going to free agency right now, 80 million cap space with 36 million dead. And he, he talked at the combine of, you know, we're about mid-tier in terms of in, in terms of cap space. Well, considering the talent on this team, you should not be mid-tier in terms of cap space. You should be, you know, within the bottom five, exactly where your roster talent is. Yeah, so I am really surprised that there hasn't been at least, I don't know necessarily, not an exodus. I'm not surprised that guys haven't left the building because Casario's familiar with some of these guys. They have uh, ties. They have previously worked together. But I am a little surprised at the amount of people that haven't been brought in. Now, I will tell you, Bill Belichick and Nick Saban are really big about don't take from my staff when you leave. Um, 
that's something that when they had the Saban and the Belichick documentary on HBO, they just kind of casually threw that in there. They were like, Hey, when a guy gets hired off the staff, like go be your own man. Don't take guys from my staff. Don't take guys off of my team. And I mean, we saw Josh McDaniels do it a little bit this off season with some coaches. Obviously when Brian Flores left new England to go to Miami, he took a bunch of new England guys with him, but I wonder if Casario has sort of abided by that from a front office standpoint in that, okay, there's guys in new England that I'd love to bring, but bill was good to me. I, I follow kind of that line of thinking and that I don't want to take from his staff. And plus I have to think that some of those new England guys looked around and they thought, okay, well, Casario has gone. Ziggler's pretty close to leaving. Austin Ford at different times had gotten opportunities to go elsewhere. There's a path to going up in the New England organization, whereas why would I want to go into a path where there's no way to go up in the Houston Texans organization? Because Nick's going to be the general manager. I got to deal with Jack Easterby and whatever his role is. And a lot of the guys that were here under Bill O'Brien are still a part of the staff. So you come in from the bottom of the Texans organization if you join Casario, whereas if you stick in New England, you can keep kind of climbing the ranks a little bit. But I, I do anticipate that Nick will have to, at some point, reevaluate his workload. This guy totally comes off as a guy that's like, give me everything. Let me do everything. I mean, he gets into the building, uh, you know, for workouts at ungodly amounts of time. Like, he puts in more work before you or I wake up than, you know, you could even imagine. And the guy just feels like he's fine with having so much on his plate. The cap stuff is concerning. I'm going to hold him to his comments about kind of looking at the cap in two year spheres, because if he's going to take these two years, the first year he was here and then this year to kind of reset and reorganize the cap, then it better be in a very good position in year three and beyond. Cause that's how he's talked about salary cap movement is you look at it in two year spheres. Well, this is year two. It's still not great. It can get better. It's still not great, but let's see how he reassess. Let's reassess it in a year when he's got a little bit more uh, maneuverability. And w- w- how do you think he'll approach free agency this year? Um, last year, he talked about a four to seven year experience player, veteran, short term deals, low guarantees, do you see that change? I know he talked about, you know, ultimately kind of admitted and hinted at maybe a more a kind of balanced approach. Hopefully there's a, definitely a lean towards youth. Um, but what do you kind of see the approach changing versus last year, which was mass and, uh, you know, and it was <laughs> throwing darts effectively. And as you said, some of them paid off in small ways as role players, but, you know, nothing was going to change the dial. You don't expect them to spend simply because they can't. Um, even when they, you know, when they can free up about twenty three million with all the the obvious cuts, um, you know, your Justin McCrae's and Jordan Jenkins and Eric Murray's and all these guys, Marcus Cannon, etc. So once you clear those books, it's another twenty three. So that gives you some cap, you know, roughly twenty three, twenty four million to go and spend. But that, considering you've got less than fifty players for a ninety man roster, there's a lot of spending to be done. So what do you think his approach is going to be? Look, nine draft picks right now. We assume more coming from a Deshaun Watson trade. We assume. One, maybe two coming from a potential Laramie Tunsil trade. So he should have a lot of rookie draft capital. And he addressed that he only had uh, a very tiny undrafted free agent class last year. And a lot of the chatter from the combine this week was 
the lack of being able to go and see some of these guys, meet them in person when the COVID affected college football seasons occurred, led to smaller draft classes towards veterans more than young guys when you haven't had a chance to really dive in on some of these undrafted guys. I would expect him to use a tremendous amount of these draft picks. Is he going to pick all nine picks? Probably not. I would think that he probably goes for seven to eight draft picks. He may move around a little bit, use some of that maneuverability, kick picks from this year into next year. Like, say, if you're sitting there in the fourth round and someone wants to come up from the fifth round, you know, and they want to throw you a third rounder next year, you do some stuff like that, maneuver around a little bit. As far as the free agency goes, I do really hope he goes away from the familiarity Take a risk, take a chance. Think about all the New England guys that ended up on this roster. Rex Burkett ended up on this roster. Marcus Cannon ended up on this roster. Ryan Izzo was a guy that was on this roster at one point for training camp from New England. So go away from the familiarity. There's some New England guys in free agency that would be nice additions, but I would like for him to take a risk, take a chance. Let's see how good this staff has scouted other NFL players. Let's see if they can go find someone who maybe has a little bit left in the tank or underperformed with this team that they believe they can get a little bit more out of. He's very clearly going to work within what Lovey Smith needs on the defense. And then as far as the offense, we're still a little unclear exactly how Pep Hamilton's going to approach this thing. And I also really am excited to see what positions they value a veteran starter versus what positions they value a veteran backup. Because you can sign a guy in free agency with the hope that a rookie beats him out, and then you can sign a guy in free agency that because you invest in him, he's the starter at the position. I very much feel like they value veterans at the slot receiver spot just based on how they've approached that spot when Anthony Miller was underperforming, the addition of Danny Amendola, when Amendola was out, you really didn't see many guys in the slot. You saw them kind of gimmick it, move it around, change things around. So I do feel like there's different spots that they value veterans over young guys, but I would like to see a lot of veterans that they're okay if a young guy comes in and takes their job. So a guy signs a contract, you hope he's the starter, but you're fine if he's the backup. Yeah. So we'll dig into some of the positions. Um, we're going to look at a number of positions this week, like we did last week, um, in terms of potential candidates. Now, I, I know Cody's picked before he tells me this, but I, I'm a proponent of not picking up, uh, picking up a veteran running back because, you know, if you look at the age and you look at the mileage and you look at the history of deals um, for, you know, for mid-tier money uh, is potential. But actually, when I looked at the contract details and actually, you know, remembered the injury history of Marlon Mack, you know, there's a potential there to pick. You know, he, he took a one-year, two million deal last year um, to to stay. Obviously, injured the year prior, um, so that's you know two years kind of lost game tape. You know, in 2019 he had the thousand-yard season. 2018 he had about 900 yards, um, eight or nine touchdowns, one another one through the air. So you know, the, there is there is a history of production there. But every year a running back is removed from that production. That's pro- probably what starts to concern you, and there's a tendency to think go with young blood. They've got three or four years to get the, the tread in the tires, then you move on to the next one. But you think Marlon Mack's a, a fit, Cody, for this one? Look, I, I, this is a guy that it, prior to the injury rushed for basically 2,000 yards over two seasons. And 
He has dynamic ability. He was really good prior to the injury. And you see when guys get further, Cooper Cup is one of the best examples of how much better a guy can be when he gets a year away from that injury. That was supposed to be Marlon Mack really this year. He's supposed to be a little bit further away from the injury. That was supposed to be this past season. But Jonathan Taylor's on the team. And it's like, how do you, how could you even think about giving Marlon Mack a carry instead of Jonathan Taylor? So he just falls down the depth turn. It's not like he was unhealthy this year. He just didn't get the reps because the guys in front of him were better. Look, if the running back room is a day two pick, Rex Burkhead, Marlon Mack, and an undrafted free agent, that's a really good running back room. You can have success with that running back room. You can have a very good training camp and preseason and ultimately pick three guys to be on the roster with that running back room. Marlon Mack feels like a very low risk, high reward guy, because if he comes in and shows you any semblance of those two seasons where he's really successful with the Colts, any semblance, he's a worthwhile guy to have on the roster. And best of all, I know he goes North and South. Philip Lindsay went East and West. I know Marlon Mack goes North and South. Yeah, well, yeah, Philip Lindsay didn't even fucking make it to the line of scrimmage half the time, so <laughs> far less anything else. Um, yeah, and, and again, I suppose Philip Lindsay's one that shows you, isn't it? A couple of years out of his peak, and then just the the, the juice just goes, and it's it's a, it's a quick, you know, a, a quick position that can do that. And I think another year-to-year position, sorry, you go. Well, I think the biggest thing, and I said this on the radio show last week, and it, to me, it's one of the biggest roster composition moments for the Texans. Rex Burkhead had an amazing game against the Chargers, okay? He had a phenomenal game, one of the best games of his career. When a guy like Rex Burkhead has that game, you think, is that the last time he ever has that in him? When a young guy, when a young guy has a game like Rex Burkhead, you think to yourself, damn, when is he going to have that game again? I think that's the biggest difference between when the old guy succeeds and when a young guy succeeds. When an old guy succeeds, you wonder if that's the last time he can do that. When a young guy succeeds, you're expecting and hoping that the next time he does that is the next time he steps on the field. That's the biggest difference, and that's why I want to see more young guys than old guys because most of the time, like Rex Burkhead's never having a Chargers game ever again. I'm confident in saying that, and I'll be happy to say I'm wrong if it happens, but old guys, you wonder if that's the last time they have that. Young guys, you wonder when the next time, and that's part of the hope that young guys bring you on a roster. Yeah, and I think the the hesitance for me to sign anybody, a veteran in that position, is it is in theory the easiest position to fill on your roster. You know, you can get undrafted guys. You see it every year. Um, you can get late round picks. You know, like Ramondre Stevenson at the uh, we saw. You know, run it downhill at us in week four or five in uh, NRG. You know, and you can get guys late every year because there is just so many. You know, when you look at the wide receiver list. And you look at the, you know, watching the combine over the weekend, there is just so many good, you know, quality guys with production at different levels. Because ultimately, if somebody's got the vision to see a hole, that's the same at any level, ultimately. And I think that's that's what's kind of frustrated, you know, many of us for a long time. We've not seen running backs with juice. Um, apart from, you know, the chronic misuse of Lamar Miller, I think it's the closest we've got since Arian Foster has been injured. So I think, you know, the, the, there's a huge part of of kind of turning the page and hopefully this offense will turn the page. Um, if we're going to get a power running scheme, then, you know, then so be it. Um, in terms, just staying on that side of the ball, uh, wide receiver, um, 
a couple of names I had, uh, Cody, was was a couple of guys that Casario had worked out in his time in New England in the 2018 draft, both up for now. Braxton Berrios was my first one um, that I, I thought of, but actually looking at some of Joe Douglas's comments in terms of the, the at the at the combine, they look pretty set to keep him, um, you know, providing they get an agreement. But a guy who, albeit asked for a trade last year in Pittsburgh, but James Washington, um, he was 60th overall from Oklahoma when he came out. Um, and he's a guy that obviously saw his role diminish, but I think you know you're talking about if there's any uh, franchise synonymous with drafting a position well, it's Pittsburgh wide receivers. So kind of falling down the depth chart, and there, um, you know, that's probably just because they keep stacking talent in that position. It's easy easy to replace. Don't think you'll have huge market. It's interesting because you've got guys like Allen Robinson at the top. You've got Mike Williams that are all going to get paid. So these guys are going to get these hugely inflated contracts. Devante Adams. Godwin, the, the, the Bucks, etc. They're going to kind of really fill up that top end. And I think there's going to be a quick fall down to the next couple of levels. But uh, James Washington was, was a guy guy that I thought, uh, but you I mean last year his, his role was diminished. But uh, what do you think about um, kind of fortifying the roster a bit with some vets at that spot? Yeah, again, I, I definitely feel like they prefer a veteran at the slot receiver position. And they were confident in, you know, Chris Conley being that backup outside guy. That's a veteran that had been around a little bit. The familiarity with um, David Cully was something that I think probably helped Conley in, in, in his roster spot more is still, you know, he was fine a couple of different times. Look, bring in a bunch of guys, uh, I, you know, not the Dante Moncrief, you know, when he was here for two weeks in training camp and like that, there's nothing left to Dante Moncrief. Like there's gotta be a little bit left to the guys. And here's the thing that I'm worried about with Nick Casario is if he's been a part of the drafts in new England, they have not been able to nail it at wide receiver. They have missed diagnose that position. And look, you can put it off on Belichick if you want, but Nick Casario, I have to imagine, had a heavy say in the wide receiver position because the guy used to be the damn wide receivers coach for that team. So you think about last year when he who he decided to keep on the roster. Well, he kept um, he kept uh, the return man who ended up in L.A. with the Chargers. His name escapes Andre Roberts. Yeah, he kept Andre Roberts. Alex Erickson played better than him in training camp. Alex, I was I was there almost every day. Alex Alex Erickson was better at returns than Andre Roberts. And Andre Roberts was barely on the field in training camp. Desmond King was better at returns than Andre Roberts. Like, he misdiagnosed a couple of things with the wide receiver spot. I don't know that there was a guy that he, like, totally missed on um, in training camp last year. Like, the guys were the guys. Like, you knew Nico was going to be on the team. You knew Cooks was going to be on the team. Conley, being a veteran, familiar with Cully, like, you knew he was going to be on the team. I'd love to see a veteran on the outside, a veteran at the slot, and I'd love to see a draft pick there as well. I'm not keen on spending a ton of money. I'm not really in love with the idea of trading for somebody off of somebody's roster, but if he can identify someone, like the tough part is like, where are the reps? Because if Cook stays healthy, he's he's one outside rep. He's one outside wide receiver spot. If Nico stays healthy, he's the other outside starter. So where are the reps? Like there's reps at the slot. There's reps for backup when Cooks or Nico's not in. So you want to invest appropriately, but you also want to have some upside to that position too. I think you look for some familiarity maybe with either Pep Hamilton or Nick Casario from a free agency standpoint, and then try to put some young guys and sprinkle them in on the on the roster as well. Just on that theme of uh, training camp and wide receiver, 
how much do you think the early injury took out Nico? Because the, the, the reports were from training camp, and I was, wasn't there myself, were that, you know, a guy who just looks different, looks a cut above the rest. Now, you know, my instant, you know, cynical sort of thought was, is that because he's playing against guys like Terence Mitchell? Um, but what he saw on tape, when you go back and watch the tape is, is a guy who couldn't get, can get open in man coverage. Um, and he's a big body guy who's meant to be a possession receiver at times, struggled with that when you know when people were jamming him up at the line. Now obviously there's a lot of learning about hand fighting and placement and first step off the line of scrimmage, you know, when the ball snapped for a, a receiver. But it felt like his camp reports didn't match up. So I'm not saying it's a Lestar gene, but it might be somewhere in between there. Whoa, we're putting Lester Gino on this guy. <laughs> I'm know. saying it's not saying that. Saying oh that. man. Uh so Nico impressed me. Nico impressed me. You got to think about the fact that he had some, you know, hiccups there in training camp. He had some hiccups in the season when he hurt his shoulder. We don't know exactly how healthy he was throughout the course of the year. He spent a good portion of the season with bad Davis Mills or Tyrod Taylor as the quarterback throwing him the football. I'm excited for what Nico brings to the table. I think he's going to be like some amazing wide receiver. No, we've seen guys come in year one, year two in the third round or the second round, come in and immediately be contributors. I don't know that Nico's that guy, but if he's growing into a regular contributor spot, again, I think you've got to kind of match up the timelines with these wide receivers. Cooks is the number one. Nico's the number two. And there may be a moment where Nico's the one and whoever replaces Cooks is the two, but then you hope that ultimately the guy that replaces Cooks is the guy that can surpass Nico or Nico gets so good that he cements himself as the number one. I think that's my big thing is like, can he grow into the hope that we have for him, which is regular wide receiver contributor. Again, I look at it similar to the Cincinnati situation. They had T. Higgins the year before they got Jamar Chase. Like T. Higgins was not supposed to be the number one wide receiver on that team. He played pretty well as a rookie. He played fantastic in his second year. It just so happened they had a guy on the roster that was way better than T. Higgins his second year in the league. That's fine. They're thrilled to have both those guys. I think Nico is kind of the T. Higgins. He's maybe the best guy until you get somebody that's way better. You want to get to a position whereby Nico can be the guy who can consistently develop and beat their number two, number three corner, yeah. and that's that's probably you know the kind of role, and that's probably you know aligned with these draft slate, I think, in terms of in terms of where he's been picked, and I think that's that's uh, that's for sure. And it, I mean, in terms of bring guys like Chris Connolly back, I think to fill out the roster, I think you do that. I think you know they, they showed enough last year that they were okay in their camp bodies, low you know low guarantees, and you know hopefully they're beaten out by young guys um, that you can pick up as undrafted or or, or where have you. Um, flipping on to the other side of the ball, I think you know cornerbacks the perennial spot. You know you got to hope you got to hope that one falls to you um, in the second round because I just I just don't see. Um, I think if, I think if you pulled all top ten GMs in the draft this year, I think every single one of them would tell you ideally they would trade back. And uh, but I just don't think that the quality at the top end or the quarterback or the overvalued position is going to allow that. So I think it's going to be you know go back to the well. Hopefully, um, you know to certainly certainly get some depth. Uh, the name I had again looking back at Casario's workouts in 2018 draft uh, was Isaiah Oliver. Now he's not quite um, lived up to his draft slate. Um, I think he was the just at the top of the second round coming out of Colorado State. He converted inside to a slot receiver, a slot uh, corner last year at the nickel, um, and, uh, and and did a lot of good things on some team. But then he got injured after a couple of weeks, so he, he missed all the last season or. Pr- 
you know, after four weeks of the season last year, he's a guy that potentially, you know, potentially got some inside kind of versatility that can, that can, you know, if you're depending on what they do with King, I think that's up in the air, you know, after all his walkthrough misses and what have you, I don't know how much he wants to be here or not. Um, but yeah, I think Isaiah Oliver, a name for me, any guys out there you think, Corey, that they could potentially look at corner to try and blend at this. I know Mitchell's on a two-year deal, which you kind of hopefully want to get someone. If this team's generally progressed, and I think Stephen Mitchell's a good example of you get out of that contract in year two because he's beaten out by younger, but hopefully incrementally better players at that spot. Yeah, see, it's tough for me to figure out exactly what they're going to do at corner without knowing Desmond King's status. I'd be fine with Desmond King coming back. I don't know if that was a David Culley issue or a Lovey Smith issue. If it was a Lovey Smith issue, King and Lovey didn't get along, then I don't see how he comes back. But if they could put it past each other, they could put it behind. Desmond King played some really good football for this team. Played inside and outside. So the versatility there is important. Look, I think that they cornerback to me is the absolute just guys get overpaid like silly, silly money. Um I don't really anticipate them taking a big swing. I could see them maybe taking a risk on some guys that have been injured or guys that maybe have, um, you know, sort of like what you put together underperformed, but I don't see any sort of big investment here. I, I would think that they might spend a little bit more at the safety spot and then just kind of try to figure things out from a corner standpoint. Maybe it's King, hopefully a rookie. Like the 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 perfect spot is probably if you have an additional first round pick from Deshaun Watson trade, that's probably going to find yourself in, in the corner market. Or I don't know that there's a player that's going to necessitate this, but if Denver or Washington or Carolina jumped up to three and then a corner was sitting there when you had their first round pick. Sauce Gardner is the guy that – Derek Stingley, both of those guys, Sauce Gardner from Cincinnati, Derek Stingley from LSU. Like, I, you can't take those guys at three. But at six, at eight, at seven, at 11, great selection. And then fill it out with a deep – it's a deep – it's a very – very deep defensive line drafts from all the draft experts. So if you if you pass on the pass rusher early for corner, you can go pass rusher later. Yeah. We'll come we'll come back to that, that third spot. I think definitely just to round us off before we get out of here. But yeah, I think guys like, you know, maybe like an Artie Burns or something like that, sure. who's, you know, was taken in the first round, not lived up to it in Pittsburgh. Uh Shandon Sullivan, um, who kinda took on a big role when Jair Alexander got um injured in Green Bay. So, you know, guys like that that are, you know, maybe ascending, um, haven't been paid yet, going to prove themselves and want to take on an extra deal. But I think Sullivan probably going to get some decent decent money out there. But yeah, but it's funny when you say the corner market. If you look at all the guys that got paid um, with uh, James Bradbury um, in New York, if you look at Xavier Howard uh, in Miami, they're all on the trade block because those big deals, once you get past the guarantees and that, that APY starts ballooning at the back end of the four to five year deal, then uh, teams start to get a bit uncomfortable with it because ultimately people hit the market. Um, partly because their own team isn't paying them, and I think that's the the, the pitfalls of free agency. <laughs>
Uh, do we want do we do we want to go down a familiarity road? Do we want to bring back Vernon Hargraves? He's got playoff experience <laughs> on the bench. You know, maybe we want to talk about Vernon Hargraves again. No, I'm kidding, obviously. Yeah, well, that, but I think though, though that kind of model of you know guys with elite traits that were taken high haven't quite worked out is a good thing that, that you've seen. You know, or or consistently go to the well. You know, and, and I hate to keep talking about New England, but ultimately is a blueprint that we've we've got to lean on. So you know, the, the, there's that point there um and for that so that obviously the just while we're talking about the secondary there it kind of feels like justin reed's uh position might have changed i thought he was gone and good is gone but then i know the kind of lovey i think lovey's maybe made a pitch from the stay i don't think we'll give him the money i noticed he put on his instagram i've decided to sign with or whatever yesterday um you know, and people would say, well, it would be legal tampering, but all these deals have been done this week, haven't they, pretty much? You know, or they've been sounded out till, you know, I think, I'll, well, I always see that the free agency process, Cody, is that basically the agents and the GMs are all in one place in Indianapolis for the final time this year, sadly. Yeah. Um, and then the parameters of the deals get done, and basically it's just a bit more for out to outbid people last minute and legal tampering. Um but I think I think he's gone. But it kind of felt like anyway there was there was definitely a an attempt by both sides maybe to make a move and with the sound of the media. I, I look, I like Justin Reed. I think he's a nice player. It's not the end of the world if Justin Reed's not on this team. Um, yeah. Now, what'd you pay him? Yeah. I, that's, I think, yeah. where, where does his number? Because it's never, it's never been there for a full year apart from as the third safety in his rookie year. It's, it's interesting because Texans fans and people who've watched Justin Reed probably look at him one way. And the way we talk about cornerbacks, the way we talk about like, hey, let's go find a guy that's maybe underperformed and maybe is a little undervalued is probably how other teams view Justin Reed. Like they probably think that like, hey, let's go get this guy. Let's go get a deal. He's played a lot of football, but he's been hurt a little bit. The team's bad. Safety's tough when the team is bad. So like some team probably views him as like a risk taker guy. Like he's not a sure thing to be a regularly good NFL player. Like there's time, like, look, a couple of years ago, he was the second best safety on the team. Kareem Jackson was the best. He was the second. And then Tyron Matthew was the third best safety on the team. Like he had a good season that year. He's had really good football. Can you replace that with someone else at a lesser amount than what he may be looking for? I think that's certainly a possibility. And staying on that theme, I think I would be hesitant to pay Malik Collins. I know the edge rushers, or interior rushers rather, are at a premium, but I think the money he'll want at this stage of his career, now teams may be put off by the fact that it didn't work out in uh, with the Raiders, but after the he's, you know after his rookie deal, he played some of his best ball on the rookie deal, not um, on that deal with the, the Raiders. But I think when you look at the list, when you look at that position, when you look at the curve the team are on right now in terms of development, I, I, I'm struggling to see paying an interior guy um, that sort of money. I really get weary when a guy plays his best football um, this late in his career and it was on a one-year deal. Like it's, it, I, I have a hard time thinking he's going to be able to replicate that. Also, the, the, the personal foul penalties stick out in my mind for some reason. Maybe it's a little unfair, but the guy basically handed a team a game at one point this year from personal foul penalty. I get that the referees are a little iffy with some of this stuff. I understand that, but look, can you find the next Malik Collins? Also too, I, I'm interested to see how much of that was Bobby King. Uh, Bobby King was probably the best position coach on this team 
last year. When you think about what the defensive line did and who the defensive line was, and for the fact that Bobby King's not even a defensive line coach, he was a linebackers coach that they moved down to defensive line, and he he was the best position coach on this team. Now he's in Tennessee. So what does the new defensive line coach look for? Uh, do you believe that he can take guys to the next level? Because if you believe in him and you believe that that guy can get a lot out of someone who's underperformed previously, just find the next Malik Collins. It, Malik Collins is not an extremely unique player to the National Football League. There's a lot of those guys. And plus, I would think that, again, additional draft picks, the emergence of Roy Lopez last year, it doesn't make Malik Collins a must bring back. If the price range is right, yeah, I'd be happy to see him back. But the moment you get uncomfortable with the amount of price range or the moment you get uncomfortable with the conversation about him coming back, buy Malik, have fun somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, if you look at a guy like Bilal Nichols from Chicago, again, on the 2018 workout list for Casario, but, you know, he played 64% of the snaps last year, racked up a number of sacks, 50-odd tackles. You know, he's not going to necessarily command, you know, the five-plus that, you know, that Malik came on. If he was on a one-year five, he's going to be looking for, you know, a two- or three-year at six or seven at a minimum. So, you know, you think when we're trying to find value to fill out spots and see what they've got, he's a younger guy. Uh, when he came out of Delaware, he, he came out as an underclassman, so still, you know, below 25. So you, these are the kind of guys you want to go after. Or if it's the kind of bust route, you know, you've got Taven Bryant there who never lived up to his billet in Jacksonville not being great but you never know you get him under Jax's arc and he turn him into a player potentially you know Malik McDowell or even and I know he was hurt last year and he had the kind of heart stuff um, but uh, Maurice Hurst when he came out of Michigan was a guy that kind of dropped unfairly um, went to San Francisco last year only played two games got injured but you know these kind of bust types can we develop them and find you know found money in guys that have underperformed elsewhere now we've not had the coaching staff to do that in previous years but listen to Jack Cesar talk kind of gave me a bit you know and it's easy you know words easy it's, you can sound good in an interview but ultimately his, he's there to motivate guys and to teach them technique and I was motivated listening to him so I'm, I'm hoping you know he can take over from Bobby King because I think he was an underrated loss yeah I do agree with that I'm so glad you brought up Taven Bryan. I have crushed Jacksonville for years for taking Taven Bryan. That should have been Lamar Jackson. The Jaguars should have taken Lamar yeah, Jackson. Well, he wasn't the first round pick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, like the, the Jaguars should have taken Lamar Jackson. I have crushed them for taking Taven Bryan, and I have hammered my buddies who are Jacksonville fans for them drafting that guy because at the mo at the time I I remember it being like a sort of an overdraft in some you know draft experts' eyes. Ultimately, I think he had like a kind of a nice year for the Jaguars this year. Um, but yeah, I'd be fine with a guy like that. And I'd, I'd probably have to go. Maybe I'd have to go delete some tweets if he ends up on the Texans. I'm kidding. I don't do that. I mean, I kind of do. But, you know, yeah, I, I, that's fine. A reclamation project. Again, the next Malik Collins. Once the moment Malik Collins prices himself out of coming back, find the next Malik Collins. Yeah. And I think it looks like Jacob Martin's on his way out. I think his, you know, as a situational edge rush edge rusher values his skill set more but you know I've said that a number of times you'll never get sacks early in games because he catches tackles off off uh, on their heels early and then very rarely contributes late on you know never really quite developed his game against the run so I think there's an opportunity to to get there a couple of names I looked at Dorrance Armstrong again was, was linked with New England to work out top 30 visit um, in Foxborough in 2018 I know he's not really lived up to much with the Cowboys but um, but certainly he's won um, there when he came out of Kansas in the fourth round. But a decent season last year, uh, 37 tackles, 12 QB hits as well. Do you, do you think how they operate on the defensive line 
in free agency will tell us what they're going to do at three. Because if they spend money on an edge guy, and I say spend money, I don't mean like a big contract, but if they bring in an edge guy of note and put a little bit of money to his name, that would make me think that they're not looking at edge at three unless somebody they didn't expect to be there fell into their lap. So do you, do you think that, that they may tip their hand a little bit from a edge standpoint in free agency? Because if they leave a big gaping hole on the edge, then we know what they're doing with three. We know what their, I guess we know what their preference is with three. But if they do a little bit of investing at the edge spot, then maybe they're not as dead set at edge player, you know, pass rusher at that three spot as we think. Yeah, quite possibly. I, I think you suppose you, you're probably going to get, get guys maybe three to six and I bet seven million range that are prove it deals. Probably you know like Derek Barnett or something like that. You know that that's that's kind of cut. That's kind of slid. Got a couple of good years coming out of Tennessee. And he's kind of gone off. Gone, gone out of there. Um, but that would be, you know, that would be a deal for him. I suppose it's probably an undervalue. But, but I think there's, you know, there's, yeah, I think that, you know, that again, and I'm not the only person to pick up this, but Rasheen Green as well, you know, from Seattle. I think guys like that. So, yeah, I, I think you're paying them, you know, medium to lower end money. So would that change their position now? That probably takes a nice lot to pick three. The two edge rushers, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Well, I'm not. Not convinced. And I suppose there's a balance, right? Because you you either pick for one of three things. You pick for potential upside that's going to become something. You pick positional value, or you pick on need. And I think the need's dangerous. Positional value, considering the tier of quarterbacks, the Nick Boses, the Joey Boses, the Miles Garrett, everyone's in agreement. There's a consensus that these two guys aren't in that tier. So do you pick somebody who has got the potential to kick the doors in in two years' time? And watching Trayvon Walker's workout, it's hard not to like. And if you watch him in Georgia, he's at that tight, tight, tightly sort of five technique that doesn't necessarily get enough space to bend the edge because, you know, that Georgia defence, front seven, was... The personification of discipline, you know, between all the positions, you couldn't leave your rush lane. Um, you, you had to be disciplined because they knew the sum of the parts would always win out if he did that, and there was nobody freelancing. So it's so the production isn't there, and it, and and on the face of it, now I saw a mock draft today uh, from from uh, Shane Shane Hallam that we've had on a couple of times, um, talk talk draft with us that they had Trayvon Walker at three, um, Daniel Daniel Jeremiah couldn't stop. You know, talking uh, highly of him on that, um, and I think teams are—he's probably one of those guys that teams are higher with um, than perhaps your your general media view. So, so yeah, over the weekend I kind of opened my—I mean, because I'm a Kyle Hamilton guy, and I think that's that's because he's the best football player in this draft, and it doesn't matter what position. I think we just need to stack talent for two or three years, and hopefully we'll be in a position to win. But yeah, I for the first time I thought Walker might be the pick there. Well, my, my, my preference at three is Aiden Hutchinson, should he be there, which he won't. He's going one or two. Um, it, it, if by the grace of the football gods, Aiden Hutchinson ends up at three, run to the podium. Like, do it, get it in, make that guy, you know, I, I've, I've nicknamed him Wolverine Watt. You know, that's basically what, I, you know, big, big, 
athletic white guy from the Big Ten, Wolverine Watt. Okay. Um, said he even patterns his game after TJ Watt. You know, it's, he ain't going to be there. After that, it's Thibodeau. I, I understand the concerns of Cam on Thibodeau. I understand that he's a personality that may rub some people the wrong way. I'm fine with that if the guy nails it on the field. Jadavian Clowney and some of the things we heard about Jadavian Clowney, it was tough to hear about those things, the lack of practice, late to practice, taking naps in the facility all the time. That's tough when the guy's not getting it done on the, on the field. Kayvon Thibodeau, think about the things people have talked about. Oh, well, he was hurt this year, and he took plays off, and it really wasn't that impressive of a year. And he still had the highest – pressure rate in the nation in the middle of an injured year and takes plays off. And he still had the highest pressure rate. Pressure rate is one of the biggest things that is indicative of future success. So for me, it's Hutchinson, it's Thibodeau, and then it's trade back. And the moment you trade back, you talked about it. You go with that Georgia guy and you, you just lock it in. I don't believe Thibodeau would be where you are. If you're trading back, like say Carolina comes up to three or Denver comes up to three. I don't think Thibodeau's still there once the time you get back on the clock. So at that point, um, I'm fine with 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 uh, edge rusher. I, I don't want tackle and I don't want safety. I want edge rusher. I want a guy that's going to put pressure on the quarterback. Yeah, I suppose if you go with the edge, I mean, I suppose one, one thing actually I, I heard this and I thought this summed up really well was that Aiden Hutchinson will reach his potential, but nobody but nobody knows what that is. Um, whereas the the bigger uh, you know, spectrum of outcomes is with Kayvon Thibodeau because ultimately he's bigger athlete, better athlete, if he can piece it together. And I listened to an interview him this week and I, and I, and I struggled to kind of get my head around what the issue is and why people are concerned. Um, I, I'm, I, I get it from some angles, but, but I think he's, uh, I, I think there's, you know, he talked about, just the way he talked about, you know, how he, and I know it's kind of cliched, but he's talking about the chess moves and all this kind of stuff and about how he goes about it. So very methodical guy. He may put it in a different way, a very less polished, less media-friendly guy than Aiden Hutchison. But I think there is a bit of that overthink going on there because the flashes are there. And the, as you said, the continual pressure rates there. And he's been, you know, had injuries. It's probably not the best comparison to see Jadavian Clowney 2.0, but I always think if they weren't uh, cheaping out on the turf at that point and it had it in turf trays and he doesn't get his knee caught up and a meniscus injury is probably, you know, on top three or four for a particularly an edge rusher to come back from, his career path could have been very, very different because he never quite had that elite burst, you know, after coming back from that. He still, you know, won, but he didn't develop his game. But I think because he got to the NFL without trying... Uh, because he was just such a natural athlete and didn't necessarily build on. But yeah, I'm, Trayvon Walker was one that I, I kind of thought of. But look, if it's Kip, if it's uh, Thibodeau, after all said and done, I think that's a huge step forward you know, in look, terms of getting talent on this roster. I love the quote about Clowney because in, out of context, when he says I'm Clowney 2.0, you don't love it. You don't, you don't, you don't like the, the thought process. But the whole quote where he talks about, yeah, Clowney underperformed as a pass rusher. Like, I'm going to be better as a pass rusher. I'm going to steal pass rush moves. I'm going to be a big-time pass rusher, whereas he was a really good defender. I'm going to be a big pass rusher. Um, and that's where he kind of felt like he would, you know, 2.0 is supposed to be the improved version. Um, that's where he kind of felt like he was the the improved version of Jadavian Clowney from that standpoint. I guess the way I would say it is in the um, – in the, if you ran their careers a thousand times, the, the amount of times that Aiden Hutchinson would spend time as the best pass rusher in football 
is less than the opportunity for Kayvon Thibodeau to spend time as the best pass rusher in football. Both of them are very tiny potential outcomes, but Hutchinson's is smaller than Thibodeau's. Like there's at least a thought that like on a more consistent basis, if you ran through their careers, there's a chance for Thibodeau to end up as the best or one of the best pass rushers in, in, in all of football. Whereas Hutchinson feels like high floor, and maybe the ceiling's a little bit lower. Like if I told you Hutchinson had Chris Long's career, like you'd be like, okay, that's not great, but that's a really nice football career where Long became a sought after veteran late in his career after a measure of success with the Rams. Like if I told you Hutchinson had his career, like that's nice. You don't want to spend the number three overall pick on that. Um, Just like you wouldn't want to spend the number three overall pick on, on another Jadavian Clowney. Like you'd want, you'd hope for just a little bit more. Yeah, no, I think so, and I think there's a there, there there's an element of of me. I mean, this is my, my first year putting a draft board together. I've just I, I actually caught COVID, so I started just going through tape of uh, of uh, edge edge rushers predominantly and guys um, putting kind of cl- you know two minute clips together in terms of you know watching five or six games. Um, I think my, my my habit is that I actually want to watch too many games, and then you know you're not going to get through them. But the the ones that I did you know uh, in the bye week. Um, was was with Thibodeau and, and Hutchison and I, I I think for me it seems like you're going to get a better athlete out of out of Hutchison and therefore you know the height weight speed's been around for a long time so I think you know yeah as you said that the upside is there just just a, just a little thing that just popped up are you tell me you're not a little bit surprised by this the Browns franchise tag David and Joku I saw that yeah yeah, this, yeah. that is wild <laughs> they, and the guys wanted out of Cleveland for I wanted the Texans to sign that guy in free agency. How's he getting? How's he getting franchise tag? Cleveland. I think it's a. It? I think that's a tag and trade scenario. I'm assuming. Um, I guess so. You know, like what they did with uh, the they did with Frank Clark a couple of years ago. Waited up to the draft and and got somebody because um, I don't think this tight end class is all that great. You know, I think it's a it's a, it's a toss up between who your number one is. It's pick your flavor. Weathermeyer's okay. Um, uh, the the kid from Colorado, um, McBride, is, is, yeah, McBride, yeah. I mean, he's kind of got a story more because of his kind of you know his family situation and some of necessarily some of his tape, you know. So I think there's a there's a real mix of kind of athletes in there, but yeah, I don't think there's a standout day one kind of starter there. Yeah, I mean, look, look, you got you got you're gonna have to get some guys that are a little bit more physical than Brevin Jordan for this team. Um, I'm fine with Brevin Jordan being that primary. You know, hey, we can block with him, but we'd like to actually throw him the football. Whereas you have more of like, okay, here's a blocker only, and then maybe a receiver only um, on this team. Whereas Jordan's kind of that in between guy. No more Jordan Akins, please. He's he's seventy years old in tight end years. No more Jordan. Would you Akins. would you take him back on like a one year no. two million deal or something? No, not even. No, I, I Jordan Akins is the exact type of player that doesn't need to be on this roster anymore because the the likelihood that we have seen his best football is high. I would give his opportunity to a young guy that has not had any opportunity in the national football league over putting him on the roster again. Yeah. Yeah, probably. I think you're probably right there. And then, um, I, right, sorry, we were talking about the t- draft. I interrupted you with the weird Browns. No, no, you, no, no, no worries. No, I think, no, I think yeah, it's, it's an interest. It's an interesting kind of d- dilemma. I think, because I, I, I just don't think there's necessarily going to be, you know, cause if you go, but even we talked about the other week about, 
uh, in, in Oakland or at Oakland at the time when they wanted to get out and they took Colleen Farrell at the time from Clemson which was a bit of an overshot but they couldn't get out of that spot there was nobody there um, you know that Rick Smith tried desperately to get out in 2014 Atlanta were very close to doing it but he wanted the Kings ransom for it um, so I think if, if Casario does get out of that I think he's like you're saying checkered history with trade he'll probably end up taking cents on the dollar on those on on that uh, move if he does I don't think you'll get you know the full draft uh, scale points if you like to, to do that so um, because there's just that lack of top end talent now the one guy who I do I, I, and 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 I, I said this last week I, I think that if you watch Kyle Hamilton the Rose Bowl against the, you know Devontae Smith and uh, and and Mac Jones and all that kind of cast of players he, he looked the best player on the field I think at times um, if you watch that game in AT&T Stadium and I think there was there's so many instances of just elite traits. Now I know his forty time wasn't great yesterday, um, and you know there's slight questions on on some of it. But for me, I just Kyle think Hammond. Kyle Hammond is the best the best player in this draft in terms of football IQ. You know they were talking about him; his grades were good enough to go to Ivy League. Just a, a lean two twenty gazelle <laughs> in the in the secondary, and I I just think there's not many players like that. And if you if you're not sure about the the premium quality of those edge rushers. And you can't get out of that pick. I think at this stage of this development curve, best player available has got to be. And I just, I hope he's there at three and there's a decision to make. Um, could you trade back out and still get him five or six spots lower? Probably. Uh, but if you're stuck at that spot, for me, I think if, just say, for example, the two edge rushers go and there's a shock um, and it's not an alignment at one, then perhaps, perhaps there. But I just, I find it difficult to not. I hope they can find a way to get back, maybe pick up another pick and get him rather than being stuck at three. But I just find... I can't find an argument to see not taken if he's there. It it would be incredible if one of these teams that is not that is before the teens ends up with Deshaun Watson and you end up with their pick, the Commanders, the Falcons, the Broncos, the Panthers. It would be incredible to leave the first round of the NFL draft with Kayvon Thibodeau and Kyle Hamilton, or Evan Neal and Kyle Hamilton, or Icky Aquanu and Kyle Hamilton. It'd be incredible. That would just put an A next to the Texans draft at that point if you do that. That's why where Watson ends up, where that other pick comes from, is so incredible because Detroit's not taking him at two, not after the Okuda thing from a couple years ago. The Jets aren't taking him at four. They need a pass rusher and offensive lineman far more. I don't think the, that the um, that the Giants would take him with either of their selections. I feel like they need things that aren't him. Carolina's not taking him at six. They need an offensive lineman or a quarterback or um, something else. They just spent a, a first-round pick on a DB last year. Now, I know that was a corner, so he's not going there. Now, then you just get it. Okay, Atlanta. They kind of need stuff on offense. Maybe they're going quarterback. Denver's not taking him. He starts to kind of fall, and then – if you have that pick in the late tens, the early, you know, part of, uh, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, that's where he's like, it's like, oh my God, like people think he's this best player in the draft and he fell to us because we have that additional first round pick. Like that is such a value building move for this organization that would just be, I'd be over them at three. I'd have very big questions about doing it at three, but six on one, sign me up for some Kyle Hamilton. Yeah. And I, I think that there's an opportunity for the 
one of, if not two of those Philly picks. I mean, for me, I would probably spread the risk and push it back into next year if any picks you can get. Um, and I include Tunsil in that, you know, if, if you can't get a first this year, which I doubt you do, you know, considering that terrible con- short, high-value contract, which has been reworked, it's going to be really difficult to get appropriate value considering the initial outlay of two firsts and, and a second, albeit the second was for still, so it's still two firsts, but, you know, let's not go down that path of the one of the worst trades you, anybody could have ever done. But... I'd probably push them back into next year just because I think you're going to, you, there's a chance that you're going to get the two, you know, CJ Stroud, Bryce Young are going to be there and you probably want the capital to give you that flexibility if you if you want to pull the trigger. And, you know, like a year's a long time, Sam Howell looked like he was going to be something, yeah. lost all these weapons in the draft and last year and it fell off dramatically. So, you know, you know, a lot can change in a year, but those two guys seem like it. So for me, I would probably, again, I know it's kicking the can down the road. Last year was a waste of time. You're going to probably, you know, at some points feel like that this year, but maybe the eye's got to be on that a little bit more than it is right now. I very much believe, because we didn't see it in college football this season, I very much believe we will have, yet again, what we saw happen a couple of different times, we will have a Kyler Murray, a Baker Mayfield, a Joe Burrow in next year's college football class. I very much believe it. It will not just be CJ Stroud and Bryce Young at the top. I do not know who that guy is, but the way college football works these days, I do believe we will have that guy that comes from basically back of your mind from a quarterback standpoint to front of your mind. I absolutely believe that because I think that's going to happen basically every year in college football from now on. You've had it happen almost every season. Just so happens this year is the one year it doesn't happen. That's fine because I do believe it'll happen next year. I don't know who the guy is. That's going to be sort of a research project this summer, but I do very much believe someone will come from the back of mind to front of mind and get in the conversation with Stroud and Bryce Young because it happens every year. This is the anomaly. This is not the standard. This year is the anomaly where you don't have that guy. Yeah, the one-year production guys are scary in many ways because I think before Joe Burrow, you would have never, you, you know, Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield, of course, you know, these guys have never really kind of pieced it all together and it's, it's a risk, the one-year production, but there will be somebody that will come out and come up with Stroud and, and Young, so hopefully, you know, you, we'll, we'll have the biggest and, um, you know, fullest pool of candidates next year should we be picking at the top end, but any picks we can put back to the later years, I'm all for. Um, but Cody, thank you very much for your time, mate. Always a pleasure for joining us. Great insight as we get ready for free agency. And hopefully this free agency can be the first start and the first steps in this rebuild that's been pending for so long. Um, and we can and we can really feel like we're taking strides forward as a ball club because it's been a very long time since progress felt tangible. But with the advent of Lovey um, coming in the head coaching job and hopefully acquiring some level of talent that we can improve the roster on. And we've touched on, on some names uh, there today. But... Uh, Thank you, Cody, for his time. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. We're getting you back through this off-season as we get into gear. It's about to get interesting, hopefully. So um, a lot to, a lot of twists and turns in the tail right on this off-season. But thanks for listening. Please check it out on, on podcasttextings.com if you haven't already. Please share it, like it, give it to a friend. 
somebody that texts us out there doesn't listen already, share it with them. We much appreciate it of that as we're trying to grow this and turn this up a little bit this year. Um, so thank you again out there. If you've got any comments, any feedback, and then send it in. Uh, I want us to speak to as many people as we can this off season um, because it's going to be interesting as it always is with this. And uh, we'll catch up with you again hopefully next week. Um, Nick pulls a rabbit out of the hat. Otherwise, we will take the the influx of free agents as a whole um, the week following. But thanks again. And uh, here's to a good free agency. Mm-hmm.